My guest today is Dave Collum, and this interview will offend some people. So do me a favor, if you would like more unfiltered content and vote with your clicks, give this video a like and share it with your network. We can actually fight back with the algorithm metrics, believe it or not. So we cover way too much in this interview for me to really break it down effectively, but we start with the equities market, get into geopolitical events, and then some deep state narratives. Super fun conversation as always. It's about 90 minutes long and worth every minute of your time. Like always, beneath this piece of content, there is a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I publish it every Sunday. It's free. I love writing it and would love to have you join the team. So if you want to hear from me every Sunday, hit that link. Here's Dave Collum. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Jay Martin Show, and I'm joined once again by crowd favorite, Dave Collum. Dave, it's good to see you again. It's always fun. Glad to be on it. I have a couple questions for you, by the way, before we get done. So, Ooh. You, you want to do them now may... or at the end? Well, I don't care. It's a question about um, um, Stratford and, and, and some people some people from Stratford who you may have not known personally or you may have. I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, and I just, uh, I just interested in what you're, I, I know what their views seem to be. I'm curious as to, you might not want to go there though, because you ah. might not want to, you, you know, it's like, oh, you're going to ask me to trash talk some guy in a, on my own podcast. Yeah. right? You know? <laughs> well, let's, let's go there. I want to get you to answer some questions first. Um, but yeah, more than happy. I, I was a strap for subscriber for like a decade. And now as you probably know, Maybe that's why you're asking. I'm a geopolitical future subscriber, um, and I find their intelligence to be worth reading. So, um, okay. yeah, happy to walk down that rabbit hole with you and uh, right. some funny stuff. Uh, okay, so let's start, though. with You just put out your 2022 year review. You've been doing this annually for a couple of years. It's an epic read. I admittedly have not completed it. It's about 152 pages this year. Um, a handful of themes in there we're talking about. One that I want to start with, though, is your expectation that we are entering a multi-decade bear market in the broad equity sector. And the reason I want to start there is because I think you're probably right. But whenever I express this concept to retail investors, generalist investors, they cannot, cannot wrap their mind around it. And that makes absolute sense. If you've been an investor for 10, 15 years, you've seen the market do one thing. You said right before we hit record, if you've been an investor for 40 years, really, you've seen the market do one thing. So why would this time be different? And so can you expand on your multi-decade bear market concept for me? Yeah. Um, markets have cycles that are much longer than most investors think. So the, 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 the 1981 to 2022, um, I'll call it 2021 bull market, um, was a series, uh, sort of a roller coaster, but it was a series of great runs followed by relatively short duration dips that within a relatively brief period you recovered. And the message was always don't sell, just hang on. The market always goes up. Um, Jeremy Siegel wrote a book saying the market always goes up. Uh, what most people don't know, there's a guy named Ed McQuarrie who says Jeremy Siegel's full of crap. Um, and that he, he, he cherry picked like crazy to come up with his numbers. Um, 
but but it has been what I'd say a, a sort of a straight up run with a bunch of V bounces along the way. And I think uh, when did we last talk? Do you remember when it was? Uh, and it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Um, the you know the Fed has been able to trigger these V bounces repeatedly. So they tighten, they loosen, they tighten, they loosen. Um, and people think, therefore, the Fed simply has this dial and they dial up our wealth. And uh, over the 40-year bull market from 81 to, to, to 92, to 22, excuse me, 2022, um, I, I kind of discussed with Gene Epstein the other day. It lasted a couple of days, went back and forth. And, and I, I mean, that, it's, a, it's an amazing feature of Twitter that I can have a discussion with Gene Epstein. And he showed 20 years of 10 year, 20 years of gold, I think it was, where it's it's been kind of treading water, not 20 years, no, not 20 years, 10 years. He said, it's not really an inflation hedge. And I said, well, any asset class you can do that with, right? So if you take the CAC or the DAX or anything, the Nikkei, you name it, uh, it's, it's, it, they don't look like inflation hedges, depending on which 10 or 20 years you look at. Um, and I sort of fired back. I said, look, you know, gold, people love to say gold bought a, bought a suit, you know, since ancient Rome. You could buy a good suit with it, but suits have changed. So I find that one lousy. The more telling one is you could buy an, uh, a month of labor. Mm-hmm. And labor hasn't changed at all. So some guy who just knows how to swing a ha- an axe or a, or a mallet or a hammer, for that matter, um, um, have, you can buy a month of labor with an ounce of gold in ancient Rome, and that's still true pretty much. And, um, and so that's an inflation hedge. Um, so um, so there's long stretches in the U.S. markets where if you happen to be sitting at the top and if you inflation adjust, that you can go decades without making a penny. And oftentimes you rally back and you think you're done. You think the pain's over and it goes up and then it comes back down. And there are actually three stretches that lasted 45 to 75 years where you literally made zero on an inflation adjusted basis on capital gains. So what do you get then? Well, you get dividends, Mm -hmm. which in the first half of the 20th century were a little over 4%. And in the the recent years, it's only about 2%. And so um, that's consistent with the idea that the markets are overvalued. The cash they're kicking out is half what it used to be. Um, and, uh, and, and by 25 metrics of valuation, the markets are 2x overvalued now. So the 20% correction took a little froth off, but it, it, it left an enormous amount of, of fuel yet to, be, yet to be burned off or exploded or whatever. I'm not a big believer that market crashes do anything. I think that market crashes are, are, are great for headlines, but I don't think they correct things. Because you mean as they in invert- like clean out the froth? Is that what you mean? Well, yeah, the market crashes clean out the froth and clean out leverage temporarily. And they do, they, they, cause, they cause people to scurry to the exits, but those guys come right back. Right. And, right. and, and so what, what, yeah. what, what really changes investors' attitudes is a long, slow grind. So, um, so if you look at, what an equity in, uh, investor. Um, Raul Paul talked about it one day, and I thought he said it well, where he said, you know, you just can't imagine how little people wanted to buy an equity in 1981, because for the last 14 years, um, they had on an inflation adjusted basis dropped 70%, and it took 14 years. So that just rips your soul off. And, yeah. and that's the kind of bear market I think we're looking for, uh, not necessarily, it'll, it'll never repeat, 
And you will never hear me talk about rhyming history because I hate that over overworn metaphor. But uh, but it, it, it'll find a way to grind us to dust. When it's finally time to do it, it will do it in a way that's not a quick, you know, flesh wound. It's, it's going to be something where at the end you just can't give the stuff away. And that will be the bottom. That, that will be the bottom. When, when the blood in the streets has dried up and blown away, that will be the bottom. And, uh, and I think we're due for that now. I, I, think, I think the Fed is, is now facing inflation, so they got no ammo left. Yeah. Um, free labor from China's over, free resources from Russia's over, mm-hmm. uh, U.S. boomer demographics is over, um, um, and, and, and the interest rates dropping from 16 to zero is over. And those are all tailwinds that could drive any equity market, let alone all four of them working concurrently. So I think that, and I, I hit Epstein with this question of what happens if over the next, oh, and, and over the 40 years, valuations rose, valuations rose, uh, compounded about 3% a year. So uh, of that gain from 81 to 2022, mm-hmm. 3% annualized was just expansion of valuations, which is illusory gains because right. that, w- that will regress. Someday we will be back at low valuations. I sort of asked him rhetorically, what happens if over the next 40 years we lose 3% a year of valuations? That's a net flip of 6%, right? But it, it's a headwind yeah. of unimaginable, unimaginable pain and suffering. Buffett, Rob Arnault, Ben Graham, um, some of the legends have said, look, in his 1999 article in Fortune, I think it was, uh, Buffett said, when you throw in all the fees and everything, he didn't include taxes, by the way, he didn't, too hard to put in, but if you include fees and all the baloney, uh, you can't make more than 4% compounded. And he wasn't talking about valuations. Mm-hmm. He was talking about just, and, and that, you say, well, what is that? Well, that's about the growth of GDP. And you go, that's about right then, right? right? If the right. GDP isn't growing, your your earnings can't be growing. Yeah. So what's going to be the, the evidence or what could give you affirmation? So you think we're here now, right? Like this long overdue, I think so. possible, this is maybe a change in the game, um, which would be massive. And I want to get into how this would shift investor psychology. Uh, a quote I read yesterday was... Um, <clears throat> The uh, three skills most required uh, for an investor are patience, temperament, and a 30-year decline in interest rates, right? Now, that's been a game. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay. So, like, if that game's over, what do people do? But before we get there, what could you see? What might you see, Dave, that would give you the confidence to say, yeah, no, I feel more confident about this than I did six months ago? Um, is Is it rates? pausing and the market not responding like what what could occur that would give you increased conviction well if i had to write the plot um i think what could happen going forward is i first of all i think the fed's going to cause more pain than people think so 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 powell is facing one of two things He, he he either is going to have to defend the currency 
not in the Forex market, but in the inflation world. The Forex market is independent of inflation, right? You can destroy all the currencies of the world and you still have inflation, even though you might be winning in the Forex markets. Um, so he's got to either defend the currency on an absolute scale, meaning um, not be Arthur Burns, but rather be Paul Volcker. Yes. Or he has to defend asset prices and let inflation roar, at which point he has just joined Arthur Burns. Yeah. yeah. And then the question is, is he a swamp creature who will defend things because people of importance want him to? Sure. Or is he an, a guy in his later years who's thinking about which pantheon he wants to be in, like the pantheon of douchebags or the pantheon of rock stars? Yeah. And he's not, he is not going to be one of the legends if he lets inflation get out of control more. So I think when he says he's going to cause pain, I would take him at his word. He said it several times. So I think the first thing he's going to do is cause more pain in the short term than people realize. And so that's going to really grind some people down to a bit of a stump. There'll be, uh, that'll take out a lot of froth. Um, then I think um, what will be the shock is if, if inflation taps down and he finally takes his foot off the brakes and then all of a sudden inflation takes off again, now we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's what would scare, that, that's what would convince me that he really is out of ammo. Mm -hmm. And that somehow we, 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 are, we are the oncologist who's looking at tumors in every part of the body and we're saying, uh, sorry guys, but you know, get your affairs in order. So, okay, so therefore you probably don't land in that we've hit peak inflation camp. Oh, we could have hit it for now. Okay. Um, what also could be is we could have hit peak inflation, but if inflation shoots back to seven, yeah, right, if it go, goes 8.5 down to say five for fun. And right? then, yeah, sure. And then also it starts climbing back up again and he's gonna be sitting there going, oh, this is not good. Our 2% target is uh, is looking pretty stupid in historical context. So I think, I think Volcker, Volcker, by the way, made mistakes too. So Volcker took his foot off the brakes prematurely. And Powell knows this. And so then Volcker had to step on the brakes again. And so he really jammed his foot on the brakes and, 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 and really, really sent the economy down the tubes. Now, here's what's different. Our economy is much more fragile now than it was then. And it's because we have so much debt. We have so much corporate debt. We have so much personal debt. We have, we have a much more uh, developed credit system, which allowed so much more credit to be doled out. And, and we've got a debt to GDP. What is it now? 130% of GDP? I can't even remember. My brain is all fuzzy from this grandchild syndrome thing. Um, but, but so when Volcker was hammering the brakes, at no point did he have to worry about systemic risk. We had 30% debt to GDP. There was just, he, yeah. we, we, he could clobber us with, 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 with tight monetary policy. Powell doesn't have that luxury. And so I just, I just don't know what's gonna happen now. This really could be the house of cards where Powell's trying to you know, do, disassemble it without knocking it down. Is it not inevitable that he causes far more damage than he intends or maybe than the market expects because his policy decisions today aren't going to be felt for a couple of quarters. These things typically are a ripple effect. However, he's responding to real-time data, like Nike's still showing positive earnings. 
yada, 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 labor reports. Well, that, that, that you and I know this. Then the guy sitting in Ithaca, New York knows this, right? And I don't, where do you live? Where do you live? I'm in Squamish, British Columbia. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, that we know this tells you they know this. Yeah. And so, so, so it's not like, it's not going to, it's not going to be a mistake. What is going to be one of those is, you know, you're better off apologizing than, than to ask permission. Right. Sure. So, yeah. so, so I, I think they know there's this lag and that there's going to be pain. And I, I think they're counting on being able to do something constructive when the pain gets severe, you know, cleaning up the aftermath of the bubble, as Greenspan used to say. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, Japan couldn't clean up the aftermath of their bubble. Right. Japan's been a disaster for investors. So, yeah. so there, there's, there's no rule that says we have to, we get to bounce back, right? We can go through a tough period. Society is all screwed up, right? You, yeah. you can't, you can't, the political system is hopelessly corrupt looking um, to me. Um, I used to not care who was president because the Democrats and Republicans all seemed capable of running the country. And as I used to say, and still say, you know, I, I think the baloney, that the, I'm a right winger, not militantly though, um, my pro-choice right winger, anti-war right wingers. I'm a strange bird. Um, yeah, yeah. I th I think uh, I think that what makes me a right winger is is if you, if they throw the, the baloney at us, their baloney, right wing baloney, is more palatable to me. Mm. But there's still going to be baloney. I mean, if you think the Republicans getting control of the House is somehow going to change something, right? It's a, it's a special kind of delusion, right? Yeah, I'm with you there. Uh, so. Can I ask you to try and steel man that argument for me though? Like what, so I asked you what could occur that would increase your affirmation. What about the opposite though? Can you put yourself in the other camp and say, you know, here's how this might play out uh, counter to my belief. Anything that could well, occur, you would see. Um, here's the problem. If we're two X overvalued, then you've got several assumptions that are required to come out whole. One is that all of a sudden, for some reason, our output doubles. Output and if you doubles. somehow think, yeah, and view some, and so instead of growing at 3%, let's just throw out a number. I We're not growing at 3%, throw out a 3%. We're growing at 6%, which means we've gone back to developed nation status, right? Developing nation status. Um, if for some reason we can become super productive, then 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 we could grow our way out. Mm -hmm. But if, if you want to accept overvaluations of 2x, which is, I think, a very good estimate. I use 25 metrics to get to my estimate. and They all point to it. Um, and at one point, someone said, well, how do you know those old metrics work? And I said, well, if you want to accept new metrics, you also have to assume there's going to be new metrics for return on capital. So if you want to say, I'm going to make the same, if, if, if you want to say, you know, 2x over value now is okay, you also have to assume that, um, that you're going to get half the return. And with inflation, that's a bad combo, right? Inflation, so that's, the, the inflation wall is the killer. It, it, it should have shown up earlier. I don't know why it didn't. When I say should have, I know there's people who laugh at me going, oh, should have, would have, could have, you know, but it, it is what happened now, what should have happened. Someone said something the other day, though, said um, markets always do what they should, just not when they should. Hmm. 
Okay. And so I'm a big believer in that. So I believe that regression of the mean is a force of nature. And I think we're going to mm. regress to the mean, through the mean, right? It has to go through the mean. We know that. Yes. Yeah. I just don't know when. I just know that you don't want to be in the splash zone when that happens. I'm with you there. And so so based off of that, and you, you know, say we're wrong in the inflation thesis, maybe once. Mm -hmm. you know, that could flip the deflation hard. Right. Okay. That could yes. flip the deflation hard. Yes. Right. So so, um, you know, in an in a zero inflation environment, uh, I've been trying to think about what a gold standard, for example, means. That's kind of a zero inflation environment. It's got an inherent one percent a year inflation because yeah. you mine the stuff. One, two percent. Um, yeah. And then if someone borrows money at three percent. You go, well, where's that money come from? Well, what, what's got to happen is for every one of those guys who borrows money, there's going to be some percentage of them who default. Mm -hmm. so, there's, so, so there's going to be a natural inflation of the money supply in one pocket, but it's going to be offset by someone defaulting on their loan in the other pocket, zero-sum game. Sure. And so, uh, so we could head into a deflation if all of a sudden what is perceived wealth, what Doug Nolan calls moneyness, right? So if you own, if you own Bitcoin, and I'm not a big fan of Bitcoin podcasts because I've I've done so many, and I don't bring anything to the table. I simply point out what bothers me. But let's say you own a hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin, and is that money? Well, if you buy yourself a twenty million dollar mansion, it's acting like money. Yeah, and and if you're if you're if you're living a, a good life because of its money, so by that metric, things like treasuries are money. Um, owned real estate is money because you're spending based on a perceived wealth. If all of a sudden that perceived wealth were to cut in half or drop to zero in the extreme, yes, then all of a sudden that that moneyness has disappeared as well. Mm -hmm. Which would occur yeah. in a deflationary environment. Well, it would be a deflationary environment. I think, I think that that is the deflation. So, so you know, Bitcoin and, and um, crypto brought $3 trillion worth of perceived wealth literally from scratch, right? Mm -hmm. I, there are some server costs and stuff like that, but it, it sure. created $3 trillion worth of moneyness. So again, I, I'm rooting for the hodlers at some level. I, I, I don't think they're nuts. I do think they could get crushed. So it's just a very complicated emotional state for me. But um, if they get crushed, that's three trillion that'll go back down, go down what I referred to. I was actually pleased with this, the block drain. Um, <laughs> so, so, so all of a sudden there's gonna be three trillion of missing perceived wealth and, and it's gonna make people not all that economically active. Yeah. No, absolutely. Okay. And I, that's an interesting comment. You know, you're, you're rooting for the hodlers, at least philosophically. And I understand right. that you may not be a Bitcoin maximalist, nor am I, but you know, I, I can understand the philosophy behind that for mm -hmm. a variety of reasons. I think anybody with a gold background actually resonates. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a silly battle. They're always debating each other. Um, okay. So yeah, maybe two steel man arguments. One is that somehow output doubles, uh, you know, mainly in the which United seems States. like a zero probability to me. <laughs> in the and the reason term, yeah. is, well, yeah, the yeah. reason is, is because anyone who makes that argument is going to turn to tech. Yes. And if you actually look at what tech has done, you can't find the productivity that it's created. Is there some stretch, David, where where you know, uh, look, 
re repatriating our industry is our industry is, is a multi-decade endeavor, right? The deglobalization right. trend everyone's talking about. Mm -hmm. That's not a tomorrow. It's not a 2024 thing. This is nope. you know, a couple decades down the path. But, you know, could that foreseeably, if expedited really efficiently, somehow provide that increase in output within the decade? Is that foreseeable well, to you? Well, not, not within the decade. I yeah, okay, think. okay. Um, this gets to one of my questions about Stratford boys. Um, mm. Zihan, that's the Zihan model at some level, yeah. except for the fact that Zihan says that deglobalization will be highly inflationary, which I think is right. Because yep. right now, a, a globalization is a situation where not only where we getting stuff done cheap as hell by people who we don't seem to care. You know, if you look at, for, if, here's one for you, the, 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 the the batteries, the lithium batteries for all the cars, all the greens. I'm, I'm, I'm antagonistic to the green crowd at this point. I'm a resource depletion hawk. I'm an environmentalist, all that. But the, but, but the, the guys who are buying their electric cars thinking they're really good. All of the cobalt being mined is being mined by slave labor in the Congo. Fuck yeah, a day. 20,000 20, kids and young adults in the bottom of this big open pit mine smacking away with mallets, picking up cobalt yeah. by hand. And, 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 and we have to come up with something like 10 times as much cobalt from what we can do now. We have to yeah. in, increase the output enormously. I don't think the world has the resources to electrify the way people think we're going to electrify. And so, That's so, and, and so, so the, I got tangentially off, but oh, Zihan, um, he, he, so I think his model that if we deglobalize, which by the way, wars in Ukraine accelerate that, right? There's things that are gonna stop working. Um, uh, if the dollar loses reserve currency status, if the US military pulls back, that's the, the whole Zihan model is that if the seas are no longer safe to sail, yeah because the U.S. isn't projecting its power globally, which we're the only ones who can, um, then all of a sudden um, we're not going to have the 1,500-mile salad, as someone called it, when, uh, you know, right. chef salad. Yeah. And, and as a consequence, you're going to be making stuff and you'll be buying tube socks made in America and they will cost a lot more. Mm -hmm. And so the money will stay here, but, the, but, but the, and then what it will show is, is that the inflate – the non-inflation was somewhat artificial because there were regions of the world to expand into labor-wise for which we could get away with paying nothing. Labor sort of like and energy-wise. When you can take labor and energy to right. the global market, the price of everything plummets. And if you can't it's do a that- little like, It's a little like looking at the United States and forgetting that for the first 150 years or so, we were expanding westward. Expanding west and then westward, yeah. west, westward, right. And so- well, it's easy to forget that while we expanded westward, we were just sort of expanding our resource base enormously. And then we hit the Pacific Ocean, right? And, and so we're no longer, that's no longer a tailwind. And so, um, so yeah, I, I think a deglobalization moving it on shore is, it w could happen and it could in the long run be the best solution, but I'm not sure Right now, up until now, we've had this metastably special situation where we got to consume our butts off at someone else's expense. Yes. Yeah, I'm with you there. I, I, I see it as like the end of the era of trust, however fragile that trust was for my entire mm -hmm. life. There's been enough of it to take labor to the global market, take energy to the global market, right. and this this, you know, 
coordination between really United States, China, and Russia um, is probably over for a long time. China. To the China. Sir, what did I say? Uh, that's what I meant. United States and Russia. I was just adding China. Yeah, United States, Russia, and China. That's exactly. Okay, so a couple things I want to pull on there. Um, number one, you mentioned the renewable energy. Uh, I'm just going to call it a uh, fallacy. Let, let's just be honest here. And I'm like you, you know, I've when you said you're an environmentalist, that's what I'm referring to. Uh, I got three young kids, spent um, an abundance of my life in very remote uh, parts of British Columbia and Canada. I think I really understand what we stand to lose if we don't take care of our environment si simultaneously. You know, the renewable energy narrative is is nothing more than easy moral virtue point scoring if you think through how that actually what needs to occur to be to be accomplished and you'd reference that 76 percent of cobalt comes from the congo that's in that's every right. that's in every supply chain it, it, no one you can't get around it's in that every chain. lithium battery every yes. piece of equipment every a piece of electronics that has lithium batteries in it your phones your yeah. your all the things right yes and if you look at the expectations of growth in renewable, well, in electric vehicles and, you know, solar is renewable in the sense the sun always shines, but in order to actually um, harvest and store that energy, you need batteries. And that's just, that's the, that's step two. And no one rarely thinks to step two. They just, you know, it's much easier to just say, we need to defund the uh, fossil fuel sector. So, you know, how does that shake out? Do you have any thoughts on that? First of all, like how that may shake out, how quickly will it take for the narrative to switch? Because the population population can see that the emperor has no clothes and the renewable energy narrative as it's been sold makes zero sense from a renewable standpoint. Well, the game changer there is if we wake up and go to nukes, right? If we go to nukes. Yeah. Okay. Then, sure. then we hit the unlimited. Here's the irony. I, this just clicked the other day. The Chinese are selling us vast quantities of solar panels. Meanwhile, not a direct line, but let me make it a direct line anyways. They're using that money to build dukes. <laughs> so they're, they're selling us the crap energy <laughs> yeah. to, to create plants to produce really good energy. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe we ought to look at that and say, why don't they just keep throwing solar panels? Now, do you think how much of that is a factor of our political leaders? needing to respond to public sentiment on four-year cycles, whereas President Xi Jinping doesn't have to do that. Maybe, I'm not for dictatorships at all, but maybe he can do the more logical thing because he doesn't have to worry about public sentiment. What do you think about that? You sound like Justin Trudeau. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Give me a break. No, you, you know yeah, I know, I know, I know. I just hammered you. I just, I just dropped a nuke right on your forehead <laughs> on that one. Um, it's some level, yes, but real leaders lead, right? Yeah. So I, 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 okay. I, I think our leaders are particularly- Which we lack. I mean, that's what's lacking is a leader with a backbone to stand up to public sentiment and say, maybe this is why we're wrong here. Maybe this is the more intelligent long-term play. And I don't know why our leaders suck so bad, but um, uh, we've got some- horribly incompetent leaders now right and i don't remember it being that bad i don't remember thinking that that our congressmen our senators were stupid and and they look pretty stupid to me and and um i think justin's father was smarter than justin i know he's a maoist and everything else under the sun but uh, I, somehow we've we've ceased picking people of talent and putting them in positions where we need the people and 
and it's pretty recent, right? I actually don't have a big problem with Obama. He he at least uh, he at least made you feel okay when he stood up at the microphone and talked to, to us. He, he had the sense that some guy with a brain is you know communicating. Um, yeah. I didn't like Bush Jr. Um, because I never forgave him for the Iraq War, and he had never struck me as terribly smart. But Bush Senior, I was a big fan. Mm-hmm. Um, Reagan wasn't wasn't brilliant, but he was um, he knew what the country needed, and and at that point in time, Reagan was what the country needed. He his timing was perfect, and um, and so uh, I I want the reappearance of leaders who you feel, feel like they're leading. And I, I don't say, I, you know, Biden, I'm torn because on the one hand, he's demented. And so do you blame him? But then, you know, in his moments of greatest clarity, he says awful things. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I just can't fathom. And the people behind him, who I don't know who they are, but the, the, some of the decisions are just horrific. And then you got guys like Gavin Newsom in California. I, California is where bad ideas are hatched, right? That, that's just that, that that place is just nuts. And yeah, well, that we're... seems to be a a political structure problem. So they have these referendums and stuff like that, and that that, that may be a structure of the politics mm. that that has done that. I, I just don't know. I I don't care about California. They can they can destroy themselves. I it doesn't matter to me. I got to yeah. find a state that's not doing that. That's the key. Yeah, which people are trying actively to do. It's interesting to watch the uh, in-country migrations occurring, right? We've right. seen a ton of this in the last 18 months. We're seeing it in Canada too, by the way. Uh, Alberta, the province directly to the east of British Columbia, is receiving record immigration in-country. And it's not surprising to me that there's also a premier, which is similar to the governor of a state up in Canada. We have 10 provinces and you know, a few territories, whereas... But the opera is sort of similar from a sovereignty standpoint, not not identical, but the current premier of Alberta is pushing for a legislature right now called the Alberta Sovereignty Act, which is strictly built to provide some safe haven status from Alberta from the federal leadership. And Saskatchewan, the, the province just to the east of Alberta, has now put forward the Saskatchewan First Act, which is the same thing. It's protection from federal decisions. To your point about like what happened to politicians not that long ago, I think Canada had a great one. Uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper steered this ship through the 2008 financial crisis, um, did things like ran a stimulus program and kept the temporary, right. you know, ran a deficit right. and kept the temporary, leveraged the national You guys region. also burned down the national debt. You guys had a growing national debt in the 80s and 90s, which you, through austerity and productivity, sort of burned it back down. That's 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 a rare example. It's that's very rare, rare example. very rare. And uh, you know, but but that strength of leadership, and not everybody loved Harper, especially by the time you know he was coming to the end of his term in office. He had more enemies than friends, as does any politician who serves a couple of terms. But logic's been thrown out the window. And you know, I had lunch with Harper's chief of staff a couple of months ago, and we were walking through the Trudeau um, camp, right? And he's like, "Look, obviously, I'm no fan, but when a guy beats it twice." You got to look at what they're doing right. And what they've done is just really effective um, delegation in leadership where you've got the front man, obviously being Trudeau, who's really just the PR guy. I mean, he's not making policy right. decisions. He's he's communications. That's his role. And then you've got right. Christia Friedland, who's actually probably who I, de- the who, and- who I detest with every ounce of my being. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and 
therefore, how, how grateful am I that we do have election cycles that are uh, relatively democratic and occur with consistency to the point we discussed earlier. Okay, anything else to share on this? Or I want to pivot to a couple other things with you. Um, and was there anything else in the Stratfor front that you wanted to poke at? Well, the, the other was a, a guy who seems to be in my camp on the Ukrainian war, George Friedman. Yeah. He's, yeah. He seems to recognize that uh, I'm not sure I can put a bottom line opinion on George, but from s things he has said, he appears to understand that NATO pushed Russia to the yeah. point where they had to move. That seems to be George's stance, if I'm inferring from what he says. Yes. correctly. Correct. And so you got a guy who is off the charts, politically savvy and aware of uh, geopolitical movements. Like, you know, there's no one, no one had more of a handle on it than George saying that NATO's the problem, which is a stance I took in the second half of my, uh, my year in review. And, uh, and this generated some hate mail, not as much as you might think. Um, and so is that, is that consistent with the George Friedman? You sort of paid closer attention than me. Is that, that the kind of thing yeah, he that's, that seemed that's very accurate? He, he's about the only individual who I believe when he says he knew this invasion was coming. I mean, we're all smart in hindsight, right? Like all of us knew, right? right. But in reality, right. not many people did. He's one of the few who I, you know, when I listen to him walk through his thesis, it's like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And from the simplest concept. He's like, NATO deleted the land border that's historically always kept Moscow safe, right? This is what right. protected Moscow from Napoleon, from Hitler. It was colossal mm -hmm. amounts of land they had to get through to get to Moscow. And those lands have been taken. So of course, Putin feels like his back's against the wall, even if to the West, it's like, what's wrong? Right? He, his, his back is against the wall. Yeah. Literally. Yes, exactly. So yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. So Christia Freeland, who I have on many occasions referred to as a legitimate Ukrainian Nazi. <laughs> um, I, it's not a metaphor. She has roots that take her back to the, the Nazis in Ukraine, which a lot of people think are an urban legend because the media, as soon as the war started, turned uh, what used to be called routinely by everyone Nazis with you know swastikas and everything. And, 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 and anti-Semitism and ethnic cleansing predilections. And, and, and all of a sudden they became freedom fighters once the war started. So the propaganda got very thick. The second Putin moved in. I think Putin moving, I think Putin moving into Ukraine caught everyone by surprise. I think they thought he wouldn't do it. I think they thought he'd you know, make a lot of noise. But I think Putin reached a point where he said, look, NATO is no longer willing to negotiate uh, honestly. Mm -hmm. And he had been arguing with NATO for about a decade in, in earnest, saying, look, you guys, you know, this is these existential risks for, for Russia. You just can't be doing this stuff, right? And there's people say, well, Ukraine's a sovereign scenario. So is Cuba. We would have taken that down to a sheet of glass if we had to, right? If, if, if Russia was putting troops in Mexico, we would turn Mexico into a sheet of glass very quickly. Um, and so Putin was being ignored. And, and guys like uh, McFall, who was the um, ambassador to Russia, was openly lying to Putin. And, and the guy you really want to watch is John Mearsheimer, who's been calling for, you know, NATO triggered World War III for 10 years now. He's saying NATO's working towards World War III. 
I found my first reference. I, I went back and looked at some past writing. I found my first reference to Mearsheimer back in 2015, where he was warning us that NATO's policy towards, towards Russia was going to get us into World War III. Hmm. And it, it really started, I think it, it amped up with the, um, with the, um, the coup, which, which George Friedman said was the most blatant coup in history, which strikes me as pretty bold statements. It's there have been some spectacular ones, right? Um, and it was a CIA-led coup, and, and, and we inserted our guy, and maybe the guy he replaced was, there, was Putin's guy, but he's on Putin's back doorstep. Whereas we're over on the other side of the world, and so, um, so yeah, so I think I think Putin acted as a completely rational individual. I don't mean rational as in like lovable, but rather he acted in a way that was that was in Russia's best interest. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I think there's more people in the West who agree with that than any of the Western media wants to admit. I did a Twitter poll. Got about 5,000 sample size. I said, who, who, who is the best leader for their country? And the choice I gave them was Biden, Johnson, Trudeau, and Putin. Putin took 71%. Okay, given the now, option. That's, that's not exactly the West version of a madman, right? That's a Russian nationalist. Now that's yeah. that's where the, the Western observers, you and I, Joe Sixpack, um, are seeing Putin acting as a Russian nationalist. Yeah, they, they, you know, people get confused, right? It's it's this balance between seeing global events through the lens of what we believe to be ethical and moral versus the pragmatic ruthlessness of history. I mean, th those are two very different things, right? And and the, the world operates one way, we like to see it a different way. And that's often, what Friedman was really good at the pragmatic side. Yes. Friedman, someone said something about a war, and he says, no, a war, a war is when people are shooting at you, right? I, I remember one line where someone was arguing there was something about a war, but it was totally abstract. He said, no, so someone's shooting at you. Um, so, um, so in any case, uh, I think the war in Ukraine is a great example of the West it could be a sort of a dying gasp of NATO. I, I think it, you know, when we blew up the pipeline, which, you know, if people are listening to this, think we didn't blow up the pipeline. You really got to do some more reading. Um, when we, meaning either us or one of our proxies, you know, whether it's the Poles or the Brits or whatever, but it probably us, because we, we had activities right over the pipeline, right before it blew up. Um, we really screwed Germany. And the reason we did is we wanted to stop Germany from negotiating with Putin. If I'm a German and I'm freezing in the middle of this winter, I'm going to be PO'd, right? I'm going to be unhappy with the U.S. Because we threw Germany under the bus. We sent them into, the, into a deep economic collapse, potentially, Yeah. by, by blowing up that pipeline. I, I read a quote from someone from about 10 years ago that said something like, the U.S.'s biggest fear is an alliance between Germany and Russia. And they sure. said that the they said that the, the Russian resources and the German technology would be unstoppable. So well, we absolutely we apparently yeah. tried to rip that out by the roots, right? Well yeah, and I, you know, I've I've seen some articles about the activity around that area during that time. You know, I, 
I don't necessarily have to look, I guess what I look at is what are the incentives, right? Like that's, right. you know, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to understand how incentives work, right? And what was the incentive for Russians to destroy that pipeline? Like, I can't really think of any- zero. zero, right? Let's turn yeah. off our own cash flow optionality. Like that makes a lot of sense, right? That's what it right. was. They could turn it off for maintenance anytime they wanted. That option was on the table. Right. Why right. remove that option from your tool belt? It, you know, but other. Well, the other the other things that I think are. So, so here here's oh, I had another Zion question, because so my analysis of Peter Zion's analysis of the world, he's a demographer, as you know, he I think he's very good factually. I think his his predictions are profoundly overconfident. He seems to he seems to predict things. I go that that's way too precise for my taste. Um, and uh, but I think he gets his facts right pretty good. And then I was watching a very well produced sort of documentary like thing that was a serious piece of propaganda, in my opinion. So my my view of Zion is he's got a a, a serious neocon streak in him. And and. And in it, he said two things that were deeply troubling to me because I don't think they're right at all. And for a fact guy to get them wrong. And the most, the one that surprised me was the claim that 100,000 Russians have died in the war. Because the military guys who I've been following, including a, a Canadian intel guy who's got boots on the ground in Ukraine feeding them information, mm. they all say that the Ukrainians are getting pretty slaughtered in this war. So the, the 100,000 Russian, dead Russians doesn't square at all, because that's about the estimate of the Ukrainian death toll, according to my sources. And the Russians are about 10% of that, according to my sources. So guys like Douglas McGregor and, and Colonel Black and, and various, you know, guys like Greenwald and Tyson all these guys who are trying to get the data. The thing he said that was preposterous was that Russia kidnapped and stole a million Ukrainian children and took them to Russia for adoption. I go, that's completely psychotic. Because first and foremost, Russia was a massive exporter of, of kids who they couldn't handle and, and the West was coming to Russia and adopting and we cut that off and Putin was PO'd, right? Russia was handling a unwanted child problem by letting Westerners come and adopt Russian kids. Hmm. So all of a sudden, why does Russia want a million Ukrainian babies? Well, that, that just makes no sense. Who, who wants a million kids? No one wants a million kids, right? You, yeah, you yeah. have a couple, uh, two, two or three enough. is just fine, right? <laughs> so so I'm, I'm not sure how he could come up with such a preposterous claim for a guy who, who professes to get the facts right. That's interesting. You know, and to be honest, I'm not nearly as familiar with Zihan as I am with Friedman. I've had George on the show a couple of times. Um, I've reached out to Zihan. I haven't had him on before. And um, far less. Well, if you do, if you do get him on, ask him about that fact. I will. Yeah, I will. Well, I mean, first and foremost, I'm like, why, if there's some truth to that, why hasn't the Western media just blown that up? Right. Because that is right. such a valuable headline for the West. Um, oh, yeah. I haven't seen it. It's like, wait a minute. That would be leveraged to oblivion. Um, interesting. Okay. So uh, let me, let me ask you a couple of questions because I know um, you played the role of a sort of, you played the role of Putin in your 2022 annual mm -hmm. review. 
um, you said maybe one thing that people are misunderstanding is the Ukrainian war that um, Putin's not losing, right? And so right. if I could steal man that for you, a couple of things that come to mind are that I think the Russia-NATO border has doubled since this war with the addition of Finland and Sweden. I think I have that correct. Right. I think right. you could say Ukrainian um, nationality uh, and self-identity has massively increased. Nothing unites a country like war, typically one right. common enemy to drive against. Right. Uh, maybe it woke up NATO. I mean, I don't know how effective that's going to be, but I'd say it hasn't been effective in the past. And at least now um, they're attempting to become uh, influential. Um, what do you think about those counterpoints, Dave? Where, 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 how would you well, push back? So at one point I saw a neocon talking about Finland and, and, and Sweden. And he said that Putin was a hypocrite because he didn't give a damn about them, but he squeals about Ukraine. And there are several layers to that onion. One is, is that um, it, it's not hard to find where Russia said that was a terrible thing. But what they emphasized was is the weaponization of Finland and Sweden. Okay. So Russia was saying, look, don't bring and, and they were trying to say, don't bring any more weapons into Ukraine. Right. So they weren't they they weren't trying to stop NATO's incursion into Ukraine. They were trying to stop the escalation. And they sure as hell were trying to stop the uh, formal adoption of Ukraine into NATO. Mm. And for Russia, it's an existential risk. Russia, Russia, here's the problem. There's not a shred of evidence that if NATO gets a hold of Ukraine, that we won't in a heartbeat cut off Russia. Sure. I, I don't think you could possibly make the argument that Russia would be safe mm -hmm. with Ukraine and NATO. So for them, it is an existential fight. NATO's purpose is to oppose Russia. That's mm -hmm. a very foundational level purpose of existing. And so, um, and everything about Ukraine is at the most strategic region of the world for Russia. And it has to do with the Black Sea, has to do with their fleet, has to do with pipelines, has to do with everything. So if you think, if, if you don't think Russia will fight to the death to keep Ukraine out of the hands of NATO, you're dreaming. Right, they will. And so then the question is, are we willing to fight to the death to get it into the hands of NATO? And I would like to think not, because I don't think we should care. Hmm. Why does the U.S. care? Give me, give me, give me a reason why why the U.S. cares what happens in Ukraine. Give me some strategic reason that I doesn't mean, involve just destroying Russia. Yeah, and the only thing that comes to mind right away is that um, that contrast between well, what's moral and ethical is what we should yeah. pursue versus the ruthless pragmatism of, of history. Well, so what was moral and ethical when? Uh, when uh, Madeleine Albright admitted that we killed 500,000 Iraqi kids. Sure. In the, in the, in the oh, Iraq yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. Absolutely. It's hypocritical. I know, I'm, I'm talking to your audience. So, yeah. so, so if you ask how many countries has the U.S. attacked, how many people have the U.S. killed in the last 20 years, we've got, we've got hands down, we, we own Russia in those stats. We, we have bombed the hell out of it. This year, here's a good one. Most people don't know this. We bombed Syria three days in a row. The question is, why do we bomb Syria? Well, the official narrative was to send a message to Tehran. And as I said in my write-up, I said, that's funny. I don't remember Tehran being in Syria. So the question is, did we really bomb Syria to send a message to a totally different country? And if so, how is that not a war crime? How is there any possible excuse for that? And I quoted uh, Tom Friedman, who's a blowhard of a higher order. 
but he still sort of is up there in his ability to accumulate information. And he said that we attacked Iraq because we could. He said, you could have hit this, you could have hit this. We hit Iraq because we could. I'm going, that's not a good reason to bomb the living hell out of a people and send them back to the Stone Age. It just, it's an inadequate. Uh, uh, Obama bombed seven Muslim countries. Which of those attacked us? None. None attacked us. If you say, oh, there was this terrorist attack, I go, that's not a country attacking us. That's some wacky guy. Yeah. who's willing to throw his life for some cause. But I, I also don't want countries bombing us because some wacky American does something weird. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So I, I find what makes me mad is the people who just embrace. I, I get the idea of embracing the Ukrainians because they are the victims. They are the pawns. Um, NATO is willing to throw every last Ukrainian in harm's way to achieve its geopolitical goal. I'm not sure NATO's quite the word, the US. Now that is NATO. I, I don't think the US has NATO support at anywhere near the level that, that our media is telling us, but, but we're willing to let every last Ukrainian get killed. You keep on, you know what end the war? Tell me, tell me, how long would it take for this war to end if the US said, we're not supplying you with any more weapons? When would the war end? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. We are keeping the war going by bribing Zelensky to keep the war going. And the minute we pull away, the war would end. And you say, oh, but then Putin would get this now. Why do we care? We're back to the why do we care? There are a bunch of slobs and Baltic types and, you know, who knows what. We're, we're all ignorant as hell about that region. If you look at one of those dynamic maps that shows borders changing each year over time, you know, those ones where they run through, you know, 500 years and 500 seconds. Yeah. The borders are moving all the time. It is none of our business to try to keep those borders from ever moving again. This has nothing to do with us. And that would, yeah, exactly. You look at the history and you just have to acknowledge that would never occur. It's an impossible. Never thing. occur. It's a constant battleground. It's just those borders have been moving since, yeah. you know, since the, the beginning of civilization. Yeah. Yeah. Since the yeah. beginning of the nation state. Yeah. It's, and it's, I, it's a funny, well, it's not funny but it's a, it's a heavy subject to dwell on like that because in I, you know, you want to balance the humanness, right. Of your, of your response to atrocities um, versus the reality of how the world's always functioned. These borders have always shifted. You know, there's been um, a continual, I mean, the whole continent of Europe for the most part has continually descended into war with regularity. When you have so many nations sharing one landmass, that's what occurs. The only reason it doesn't in the United States or in North America, I should say, is because it's the United States. Oceans. Oceans. Yes. Yes. We and can own the landmass. We, we right? could attack Canada. Right. Yeah. And, and then and then we'd have better fishing. Um, <laughs> but but the. Uh, you'd also be hard pressed. To in any way, shape or form, make the case that Putin was intentionally killing civilians. That story turns out to be a complete fiction, best I can tell. Yeah. The, the earliest part of the war, one thing you notice is that his troops were doing all sorts of odd things that had nothing to do with killing people. I believe Putin was trying to work his troops down to get to the Azov battalion, battalion stronghold to exterminate them. Let's use a harsh word, exterminate them. He wanted every last Azov battalion guy dead. The reason is because those are the Nazis who've been been presenting the Nazi threat 
against Russia. And the guys who uh, CIA Victoria Nuland crowd trained and armed to be their most logical point army to attack Russia. And so for Putin, he wanted to demilitarize Ukraine. And the way to do it is to get those crazy bastard Azov guys. Now, you think they're you think you think I'm extreme calling them Nazis. Here's here's the pearl of wisdom I'll give you. Go to go to Twitter. And I used to say, go to Twitter and do a time restricted search to pre 2022. You don't even have to do that. And you start reading tweets. You search Azov Battalion. You start reading tweets and you will read nothing but atrocities all the way back, as turtles all the way down. And you can see where the UN is accusing them of, of being, uh, of being uh, on, on civil rights watch lists and stuff. The Azov Battalion, they're not good people. They're bad guys. They're like, uh, my best metaphor for them, my best analogy is they're the equivalent of the Mexican drug cartel. Mm-hmm. They will leave body parts around on the side of the road because that's what they do. There's... You know, Ukrainian doctors who are who are who are uh, who are who are doing interviews saying, "Look, we are getting Russian POWs in the hospital who've been castrated." You know, stuff like that. Now, maybe it's propaganda, but if you go pre-war, you will find nothing good about the Azov Battalion, and those are the guys who are in the Azov style. And what was said to be a heroic fight for freedom and protecting civilians? No, the civilians could have been let out multiple times. Russians had to let them out. Yeah. And they didn't want to let them out because they, they wanted them to be used as human shields. Putin's actions, and I don't know what he blew because I'm getting it all through the Western lens, but I, I'm sure he made mistakes. But I think he was markedly influenced by the Chechen war where um, Russian casualties were too high and he paid way too dear a price for that. And so I think he explicitly didn't want to have a high body count. He wanted to suck Ukrainian troops into defending cities, run around the cities, get to the Azov guys and squash them like a bug. That's that's a Scott Ritter model, basically. Yes. Interesting. You know, it's funny, as you're walking through these events, I feel like I understand what almost triggers me about how we've amplified this specific crisis. And it's that Mm -hmm. we cherry pick our indignation so specifically, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Let's pick this one. Let's throw all our resources at this crisis. If you don't care about this crisis, you're heartless, right? Right. And at at the cost of ignoring the morality police beating women to death in Iran. The Yemenis, you got it. Yemenis, the three Armenian Azerbaijan war that was only a couple of years ago. Um, You know, you can Mm -hmm. go on and on and on and find, can do the, Children in the Congo digging for cobalt, like pick your crisis, right? But right. we cherry pick our indignation, focus all of our resources and attention on it, and then point the finger at anybody who doesn't feel the same way that this is the most important thing we should be talking about right now. You're you're morally corrupt, evil, and some kind of a so degenerate. put up your yellow and blue flag on your Twitter feed and show that you're yeah. a virtuous person. But the fact is, the, the discussions I've gotten in on Twitter, it is immediately obvious that the person doesn't even know that there's been a civil war raging in Ukraine and that the ethnic Russians in Ukraine, the ones who'd say, look, I'd join Russia in a heartbeat, have been slaughtered to the tune of 15,000 over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so the average American is signing off on this because the media is 100% corrupted at this point. Our media, see, 
I have this, this theory that um, when the free market fails, you get a black market. And that's true of the free market of ideas. So when the free market of ideas fails, when censorship and all these things occur and the, the media is owned by the military industrial complex or the Wall Street industrial complex or the deep street, I like to call those guys, uh, then you get a black market. The black market is Jay Martin and, and Matt Taibbi and, and, and various guys who are trying to get it right. And people are homing in on them because they go, these are the guys. I don't know if they're right or wrong, but they're trying to get it right. And that's all I need right now. I need mm -hmm. someone who's trying to get it right. And right now, the major news networks are, are trying to get nothing right. There, there's, I see no effort with the exception of a few stray talking heads who seem to cross the dotted line occasionally. Yeah. And, and so it's wide open for the independent media. The independent media is being handed this gift. You, you dig facts and you tell the story. Um, you will somehow be rewarded because the world is starving for good analysis, honest analysis. Are you optimistic about the media landscape? In any way, I nope. mean, I love what you just said. When free market fails, black market prospers, and then you related that to the media industry or the exchange of ideas, which right. I'm stuck on that point. I like it a lot, and I agree. We're seeing a wave of independent creators at the cost of immense competition. I mean, I wrote an article a couple of weeks ago about the liberal government's subsidization to the tune of 717 million dollars thrown at media in Canada to keep the industry alive, but obviously cherry picked to organizations um, under certain parameters that actually completely exclude boutique or independent journalism, um, right. prevented any of those dollars from reaching, uh, you know, the Matt Taibis of the world. So long-term, like, you know, will the black market fight its way to the surface and keep its integrity? Are you optimistic about the media landscape or what do you think? Well, see, I, I said this years ago and it's looks more and more true. I think the, um, that the, the internet is democracy's greatest hope and worst enemy. And so it's a battle for the digital world. And yeah. we're, we're seeing this in the Twitter files, right? Yeah. We're seeing this and, and, and I'm still trying to figure out if Elon Musk is some Manchurian candidate or if he's actually really feel strongly and is gonna follow through, but um, he sure is saying the right things. And he sure is scaring, scaring the right people. But, you know, when you can shut down a discussion of a laptop, not just, you know, several days before the election, shut it down until after the election. They shut the real discussion of it down for about a year. And, and that's just, uh, that means that, um, that that media, form of media is just worthless. They're, they're negative. They, they're not even not worth much. They're, they are, they're a detraction from everything I hold dear. So what I like to say is, look, if, if you're willing to lie to me for a political gain, and I don't care if it's a right-wing gain or a left-wing gain, you are my enemy. You are my enemy. You, I, I, you, you can rot in hell. I have nothing, nothing, no warm spot in my heart for you. I don't care if you're getting paid. I, I get another job. Hang sheetrock. I don't care. Just don't, just don't do that because the media is so central to democracy. And they're squandering it. And so, so I, I, I'm hoping that we, we win. I think the Supreme Court's behind schedule on the digital world, for example. I think there should have been cases already where the court rules that what you can and can't do is a digital platform. 
And it seems like they're either stalling until they figure out what the right answer is or they're not getting it or something. I don't know. Maybe they're owned already. Maybe the Supreme Court's already corrupted. I don't know. Mm. You know, it's oh, man, I, I battle with this. I I want to be optimistic about the future of media. Um, and, you know, then I see things like a reference to Canadian subsidies that were like as recent as 2019 forward, almost a billion dollars, which in Canada, right. Canadian media, it's a lot of dough. It's a very influential and what happens when the uh, organizations are receiving hundreds of millions of dollars from the individuals they're supposed to be reporting on? Like, obviously, this is the right. definition of a conflict of interest. And I see the momentum of journalists like Taibbi, like Grinwald, like um, Michael Schellenberger, like these individuals are mm -hmm. causing waves. And I want to say yes. And you're seeing, um, you know, well, people like Rogan, right? You were... He mm -hmm. most recently shone a massive spotlight on that specific Congo cobalt crisis, right? And mm -hmm. and um, good luck seeing that picked up anywhere yeah, else. Yeah, but... yeah, that guy. I saw that. I saw that podcast. It was the guy was really good. He was really yes. good. Boots on the ground it, uh, journalism. Yeah, and and so it's conceivable independent journalists will simply grab the ball and run with it, right? And that the media really will become just worthless and 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 will have, you know, CNN Plus was this pay to play subscription service that CNN thought they estimated they'd get 29 million subscribers, they got 10,000, right? That's that's a pretty deadly, that's a pretty deadly message for them. Um, yes. And I just, I just can't believe more people didn't want to pay to listen to Brian Stelter and Don Lemon talk about stuff. Um, so, so I, in that sense, there's reason for optimism, but um, but I worry that they're just going to keep grabbing control of everything. Yeah, and, and, I think you're right. And, and, and so, I think you'll find that to be the case as far back as you look. In Roman Empire, you know, media was manipulated. Propaganda was prominent. Right, right. right? But government was smaller. Sure. See, the problem now is, so uh, the U.S. has given $100 billion to, 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 uh, to uh, um, Ukraine, right? Now, what's so important about the FTX collapse is it looked like, the, basically, it looks like they were laundering U.S. contributions to Ukraine um, through the Ukrainian National Bank, using FTX to feed it back to, um, back to the DNC. And, and I think we know this now. And, and DNC sponsored super PACs and things like that. So now you have people who lost their life savings and they've now discovered that those lost life savings are in the hands of the DNC and its buddies. And when uh, the, the press secretary of the president was asked, are you gonna give that money back? She pleaded the fifth. So you've got a president now hmm. who stole your goddamn life savings. Yeah. He stole your life savings. And he's not going to give it back. Tell me why you don't tell me why you don't hate him with every ounce <laughs> of your being, right? So so if someone does that to me, I don't know. I'd be looking to get even. Yeah. I, I, I really my brother and I both have this terrible frontier justice theme in us. And I'm probably all bark and no bite, but but there's gotta be others out there who say, look, I, that's it. You guys took away. Remember the guy who uh, took on the LAPD about ten years ago? He was a he was a cop. The LAPD was corrupt to the core, pretty much. I think there were good guys. He wrote a manifesto 
and laid out the corruption in the LAPD. And he named names. He said, this guy's good. This guy's good. This guy's bad. This guy's bad. He laid it on. It, it, it was page after page. And what was interesting is he wasn't a loner. He seemed to have a sense of purpose in his life, but he just said, I've had enough. And he took him on. And then, of course, they killed him in a, in a firefight in some question. cabin. Right. So, so they can't let him get to court. And so they killed him. And uh, but 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 there's there's people out there. Yeah, there's people out there. And, and what I don't understand is what would be the trigger that would cause people to pick up their muskets? Let's use an analogy that uh, that we remember from the past and, and start you know shooting people at Lexington and Concord. Right. There, there is a tipping point, uh, an American spring. Well, I, I hope it right. doesn't get there, but. You know, here's a reason to be short-term optimistic about the media sector. And right. So I've been reviewing like top performing, most downloaded podcasts of the year. And what is an interesting bullet point is that of the top 50 most downloaded podcasts of the year, there's almost as many publishing houses and management companies behind those 50 shows. If you were to pull the 50 most downloaded or listen to songs or watch movies, You'd see the same four to six publishing houses right. or management. They're saying there's a diversity. At present, there is. Now that's going to be temporary as podcasts mature. That roll-up will happen as it's always occurred, and eventually it'll be the same four to six publishing houses. But for now, there's enough independence um, that there's less oversight and there's there's more unique perspectives and there's a lot more to sift through. And probably eventually the same thing will occur because Unfortunately, everybody eventually, I think, has their price and things get rolled up and consolidated into a few governing bodies, essentially, is what occurs in media. But for now, right. it's kind of like open season. And right. there's a lot of voices and a lot of independent- Well, this is the battle. The battle's still being fought, right? This, this means yes. that the battle for control of the internet yes. is still being waged. So we haven't lost yet. I fear yeah. we're losing. I mean, look at the COVID narrative. What a disaster that was. Yeah. And yeah. and finally, finally, you know, when that football player went down yesterday, yeah, two days ago. Yeah. Right. We actually had active debates about what the hell it meant. And, and you know, it stunned me that people were accusing some of us saying, look, you know, it's a little suspicious looking. I'd be looking for blood clots to that boy. Um and they were saying, oh, it's just appalling that you would say that. You got to wait for there being real day. And I said, look, this is a cocktail party. We're, we're at the Twitter cocktail party. We are discussing the possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. Don't try to shut down this discussion. This is a legitimate discussion. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, but, but before we couldn't have it, we would have been kicked off Twitter. Yeah. yeah. And, and the only thing that like... saved us was Elon bought all of Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Right. How many times is that going to happen? And and when is he going to open up Twitter proprietary video? <laughs> right. Please. Right. Right. Huh. Interesting. So, um, so I, I, I worry. Uh, the other thing is the digital world has such inherent um, authoritarian capabilities. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's Orwellian. Right. I mean, it's it's when I read 1984, I remember thinking, well, that's not possible. Well, now it is. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right now, it's completely and utterly possible. You know, they're talking about clothes that track your your bodily functions while you wear them. You don't necessarily have to know that. They're talking about central bank digital currencies. People don't understand how bad those are going to be if those if those get a hold of the system. Central bank digital currencies will be the most gigantic step towards authoritarianism than anything they've done to date. But you know, watching Justin squash the truckers, boy, that was heartbreaking. That was, that was really a bad, bad moment because it showed that they were going to make sure that those truckers could not win. All they had to do was say, look, okay, don't vaccinate. That's all they had to do, but they couldn't give them the win. You know what though? I, I, see, it, I see that one differently and I see it as a win. And the only reason, because I'm Canadian and Canadian events don't make global headlines very often. And that- So day- you got the headline, you got the headline, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it it sent a message and inspired similar movements around the globe. And yes, it was shut down here with, um, you know, some, some incorrectly applied emergency measures, but regardless, the effect worked like they succeeded, I think in their mission. Uh, First of all, uh, mandates were backed off relatively soon after that. And the government claims there's no uh, relationship between that yeah, right, and right, right, Bill right. Gay, sure. But more importantly, like it inspired global action. And and so, you know, there's, there were some casualties in that event, tragically. Um, and uh, Well, so I would make the same argument with COVID because w- what's happening now is, is that is a much higher percentage of the population can see the authoritarian underpinnings of the COVID response. Yeah. A year ago, a year ago, you know, I, I wrote about it last December and and I, I think nothing nothing changed dramatically since then, except for data came in to show that those of us with concerns were right. Yeah. And I think I think they overplayed their hand. Right. So the authoritarians in the covid story overplayed their hand. So now they have lost trust. And that's a good step, in my opinion, because they're a un- bunch of untrustworthy SOBs who, who should be taken to The Hague and convicted and hung from the neck until dead. I, I sincerely believe there are thousands of people who, who, could be, who could be tried for crimes against humanity. And, and, and they're not going to be. No. But every time I get to do a podcast, people hear this and they mm. might think I'm nuts, but they might say, geez, I thought I was the only one who thought that, right? And maybe I'm not alone. Maybe I'm not, you know, and so they'll, you know, the dining room table at Thanksgiving and, and Christmas mm-hmm. was a different discussion this year. Interesting. That's my guess, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, certainly. And now I run into people who they talk, you ask them if they were vaccinated, they're apologetic. They go, yeah, I had to because my blah, 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 blah. It used to be the person who wasn't vaccinated had to just hide. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that I was awful. That By the way. A lot of apologies are overdue for that crowd. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, there, there's sure. some people who were really militantly vaccine oriented and they they overstepped. I can understand why they think you should get vaccinated, but they um, they joined the sanctimony industrial complex is what I call it. The people who take on a cause and then just go batch it. Just just yeah. just and they're confident they're right. Now, let me ask and you the, the different. Yeah. Can you, do you, I, I, I'm torn on how I feel about that. Cause I, I saw the same thing everybody mm-hmm. else saw, like some voracious, you know, right. just get right. the jab or, or fuck off sentiment. And thinking back on it though, when you look at the media 
um, coordination that just engulfed people. I mean, at what point do you have to look at the environment somebody lives in, the narratives they're slammed with every day, and just supremely funded and well-coordinated um, media push to convince them of a thought? You got to say like, well, you know, you're kind of living in a hermit kingdom here. And so they're they're victims of of I would say of, that of a would, world that class, yeah. right? Except for if you look at things they said to their relatives. Oh, I know. Yeah, I mean, they, they lacked yeah. compassion. There, there was no open mindedness on some of them. Some of them, there it was fine. I have liberal friends who I can sit and chat with, yeah. and then there's some I I can't because sure. they can't like we can't get near the midline at all. Um, yeah. And so so. I, there was you remember this professor from Brown who wrote the article, I think in the Atlantic Monthly or something, and said, you know, it's it's time to get by this and you know it's time to forgive and live and let live. And she got clobbered. And the reason is is there were too many lives destroyed. And if uh, you actually look at her history, she yeah. is militant sort of neo-Nazi vexer. Sure. And so she was saying, you know, let's let's call that a never mind. And you go, I'm sorry, but people lost their jobs, they lost their careers, they lost family members, they 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 just they the 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 the, the over response. I I if I had about a paycheck, and I can I can always cite stats, but I never know if my stats are as wrong as someone else's stats. But if I had about a paycheck, I'd say the response killed many more than the disease itself. Mm. There's prominent virologists and, and 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 pandemic experts who are saying exactly that. You look at the you look at the incidental causes of death due to suicide and drug use and 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 uh, huge 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 numbers of fatalities that look like they were due to the response, not not yeah. And and now you got the you got the guys who are who are brokering this terrible information it's clear they knew it was terrible information it was clear you know when the vaccine was released and five days later the cdc or the fda i can't remember which but they're both the same thing basically um when they say pregnant women should get vaccinated i go you're lying now you're lying pathologically you do not ever tell a pregnant woman to take experimental anything never you mm -hmm. don't smoke you don't drink you don't go near cat boxes you sure as hell don't jam an mRNA vaccine into a pregnant woman. If she's really sweating bullets over the disease, isolate, yeah. right? That would have been the advice. Yeah. And so, and when, when heads of pediatric societies and heads of, 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 of various medical societies in April of 2021 were saying the vaccine is totally safe for pregnant women, I'm going, we are five months from delivering the first vaccinated pregnant woman and you're saying this, you have to know you're lying. Well, because they lied knowingly in something that's of such phenomenal risk. Mm -hmm. How many lives did they cost? How many miscarriages? How many stillbirths? By the way, there's stats coming out. And again, I'm, I'm, there's stats from official government websites in Australia coming out showing an 80% drop in birth rate mm -hmm. in 2021. 2021, 2021, yeah. So nine months after they released the vaccine, the birth rate starts dropping. And by the end of 2021, it was down 80%. Other countries, same drop, smaller magnitude. Mm -hmm. Don't know why, the story's still playing out. 
could be baloney. The Australians decide, oh, no, but it's not up to date. They start waffling their butts off. But it was there. And by the way, birth rates are pretty easy to track because you fill out a birth certificate. It goes into a federal database. You don't feel, oh, by the way, we forgot to enter those babies into the database. You are now officially an Australian at that moment in time. And so, um, and so then the question is, and, and now the peddlers of this horrid misinformation are now backpedaling and saying, oh, we didn't actually say you had to lock down. I go, yes, you did. You mandated it, you piece of crap. Yeah. And that, well, that's the right? other side of when you say their response. That's a very, it was like this prolonged dystopian social experiment, right? Putting humans isolated into cages, more or less. Especially right. like I have a backyard, I've got a big house, I'm really lucky. Uh, my brother is in a condo with no balcony. It's like a little glass box. You know what I mean? Like right. that's a different story. And that is psychologically altering. Like, it, you know, the 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 scale of, of that social experiment was pretty horrific. And I used to look at what we look at what we did to the kids making a mask up. You know, if I'm in high yeah. school and I somehow don't get trigonometry as well as I could have because I was locked down or masked up. I'll be okay because I wasn't that good in trigonometry anyways. Sure. But but you take some five-year-old who's trying to learn the real sort of imprinting level learning and you take that away and you don't show facial expressions, which are critical. This is well known in the psych community that the kids are reading facial expressions nonstop and they're communicating with each other nonstop and they learn about sex nonstop and they learn about how to talk nonstop. And I don't know what your experience is, but when my kid would come home from daycare with a whole pile of new vocabulary words every day, it was clear that you take that away, you hurt the kids. Yeah. Well, I like to say it, the Indian kids can't roll their R's now. Right. And uh, and 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 that screwed up so many kids and there was not a shred of data, not a shred of data arguing for doing that to the kids. Not one little whiff of data. They were never at risk. There's no kids, no healthy kid died of COVID. No healthy kid. You say, oh, you know, they did it to save their parents or their grandparents. I go, what sick society throws the kids under the bus to save the grandparents? That's a great question. None. 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 Those societies go to the way those become dead ends on, on the evolutionary tree. And so so this was the sickness. And by the way, I pay attention to all the all the anti-vaxxers, and all the anti you name it. I was in a Zoom group for COVID uh, ethical something or other doctors for Zoom. I somehow got invited in and every imaginable anti-vaxxer went through Malone, McCullough, you name it, Bobby Kennedy, the whole enchilada. Scott Atlas, they are all to the last person convinced that this lockdown and this response was deeply sinister geopolitical oppression, not medical. To the last one, they've all they've all concluded that there's nothing about the lockdown that was medical. It was geopolitical. It was it was controlling humans. Now. I don't even know if that's true, but it shows you how dark they got. And even Bhattacharya, who's the most rational of them all, the way he talks now, you go, holy moly. These are elite virologists. I mean, Stanford's loaded with virologists who are talking about how bad the response was. And so, and, and the evidence is that these guys knew it. 
the, 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 the lockdowners, the vaxxers, they've known it. They knew it the whole time. They knew they were lying. And as a consequence, take them to The Hague, convict them and try them. My only objection to that would be what could inspire global coordination at that scale between nations that can't coordinate on anything else? No, it won't happen. You're right. It won't happen. Right. That's my utopian world is that we have a Nuremberg trial. We put them in plexiglass containers. We say, what did you do to us? Right. We bring witnesses. And then if they're not guilty, we acquit them. Sure. Yeah. But by the way, guys like Peter Dayzak, who's blocked me on Twitter for reasons unknown to me. I don't know Peter Dayzak and, and Ralph Barrick and, and, and the guys who I think helped create the virus. Those guys helped create the virus. They helped hide the fact they created the virus. The whole intro. Ken, 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 Ken Anderson, Christian Anderson. These guys are all guilty of very bad things. And, and when have they testified? Who has called them forward to testify? You know why? Because they are part of a gigantic global bioweapons complex of which there's 36 bioweapons labs in Ukraine and something like 331 worldwide. They're, NIH and, 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 the, and the Department of Defense are joined at the hip. Mm. So, so they use NIH-based facilities and stuff to do the bioweapons studies. So hmm. they're all so that's why they're never going to testify because you're going to get you're going to haul a bunch of CIA guys in front of Congress. No, yeah, never going to happen. Not likely. Not likely. Interesting. Well, look, Dave, <laughs> we're an hour and a half in. I uh, I um, I want to thank you for your time, man. It's um, we ran through way more topics than I anticipated. And I really appreciate how we can go so deep into so many and start with, uh, you know, wherever we began here, I think talking about the equities market and um, walk our way through geopolitical events through to public and political sentiments. And then in the, you know, sort of dissecting what we've all been through over the last few years. I really appreciate the, just the diversity of subject matter that we can chat about. It's very fun. Well, you know, my most successful podcasts are when the podcast host can control me. <laughs> I don't and, know if I did that. And, and, well, I, no, I, you move me from topic to topic. And, and, and you know, um, I, I, the podcast host is very, very important. And I think you do a really good job, in part because you come ready. And, and, and you know, you know where you want to go eventually. And I don't know if you knew it all, but... Um, so I, I take my hat off to you and uh, happily do it anytime. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.